Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 31st, 2018, and this is episode 2283 of the Survival Podcast. And since it is a Friday, it's time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A. Here's what I've got lined up for you guys today. Last week, on the Expert Council, we got the opinion of NDs and MDs, and one versus the other, and when to use one and when not to, etc., uh, from Gary Collins. This week, we're going to get the same opinion from Doc Bones. Uh, Doc, by the way, is, uh, of course, an MD, so he'll have probably a different perspective than Gary. But I'll, I'll point out right now that one of the big differences... Is Gary being on the West Coast, specifically on Washington State, Washington and Oregon both have fairly advanced ND certifications. Pretty much the rest of the country, there's no such thing as a licensed ND, as far as I know. Uh, you can call yourself a naturopathic doctor if you have a doctorate in naturopath naturopathic medicine, but there's not, it's different. I'll just put it to you that way. So the access to the level of, of, of practitioner may have something to do with the difference in opinion, if there is one as well. I actually haven't listened to docs yet, so we'll find out when we listen. Uh, next, uh, we have a question for Mike and Sula Pries involving homeschooling with something I think is useful for parents everywhere. The person's concerned about the way their child is holding a pencil. Now, this, this seems like a, a, a small thing, but you know there is a, a right way to hold a pencil or a pen. And uh, we're, we're kind of taught to do that in school. At least at one time, they used to grade things like handwriting, which always got very poor grades in. Um, and and when, I, when I look at that, I, I, I wonder, like, you know, what way is this kid holding a pencil that otherwise i guess i guess you could hold it you know really you're supposed to kind of rest it on that middle finger and then use those two fingers uh, the thumb and forefinger and kind of write that way and maybe they could be holding it without that resting on the middle finger or maybe somehow different i i personally wouldn't worry about it unless they're holding it like a clump fist where it's sticking out the bottom and trying to write like that because it's not going to work well but I, i guess the bigger thing here is going to be like how much shit do parents worry about that they shouldn't just to be blunt, with kids in their development. I mean, seriously, like, there are certain things I think, like, yeah, you know, give a little bit of guidance here, a little be easier on them, but how much do we worry about piddly little shit that maybe we shouldn't? And Mike and Sue kind of are a little bit more um, diplomatic in their response to that. Um, we have an article that came in from John and Moore Park that was on five things you should do uh, to prepare yourself for a market correction, and I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send this over to somebody who's going to slice it and dice it a lot more nicely and diplomatically, kind of like we were just talking about, uh, than I will, Mr. John Pugliano. So John has now got that one, and he's going to talk about it with you. Um, I have a question for Ben Fitz on looking at other coins to mine in more of a speculative uh, place, because a lot of the mainstream coins have started to go uh, more and more uh, toward... Uh, a technology known as 
ASIC, right? Which is is quite expensive, it, very expensive uh, for an ASIC rig. Uh, so with more and more of the altcoins becoming uh, mined by ASICs, uh, a lot of times by ASICs that are kind of being retired from Bitcoin and then moved on to these other altcoins, uh, does it make sense to do some speculation, move into something in particular? The, one of the coins that this individual asked about was a coin called Ravencoin. And Ben is you know, in a perfect position to answer that question. Uh, we have a question on dealing with wax moths as a problem uh, in your beehives for the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. We have a question on choosing the perfect coffee grinder from Nicole Sauce, and she'll uh, uh, come up and admit to destroying my coffee grinder by abusing it. Uh, she actually did that, yes. And then we have a question on converting traditional farmland to a natural homestead and kind of a unique challenge with it. And that was sent in for either Nick Ferguson uh, or, or Ben Falk. And I sent it to both of them, and Nick did get me a response. And I'm recording this show Thursday, and I'm not going to finish it today. I'm going to finish it tomorrow. So we'll see if maybe Ben can get his answer back to me. And what I'd like to do is close the show with Nick's answer, my answer, hopefully by the time I get to it, uh, Ben's answer. And if we can do that, I'm, the way I'm going to do it, I promise not to cheat, I am going to give my answer and record it, and then I'm going to go ahead and put it at the end, but I'm going to then listen to uh, Ben's and Nick's. And all three of us are going to answer the same question without knowing what the other one said. I think that will be an interesting way to close today's show. And we'll have all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, let's, uh, let's get a little historical perspective and take a look at this day in history. We're going to go back to 1963 on this day, August 30th in history. This is when one of the best things that happened during the Cold War to reduce the possibility of the Cold War going hot occurred, yet it became an icon of the Cold War, a symbol of the tension between the Soviet Union and the United States. On this day in 1963, the hotline was established between Washington and Moscow. And this became in movies and culture the red phone, the infamous red phone. Remember the red phone? It was You'd see it in things like James Bond movies and spy movies and, and uh, different TV shows and stuff like that. There'd be the president usually... Um, you know, he would, uh, you wouldn't even see, they wouldn't even try to have somebody that looks like the current president, just be like this guy in a suit. You'd see him from behind, and a guy would bring the phone in, and it was just a red phone with a single button on it, and he'd pick it up and talk to him. I'm not sure that that is, in fact, I'm pretty sure that is not how the hotline between uh, the Soviet premier and the United States president actually worked. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a red phone that they brought in or something with a red, but there was a direct connection, and that's how it was symbolized in media. Uh, this was done kind of on the heels in 1962 of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the United States and Russia came really close to blowing up the whole damn world. Just to be completely honest, like we almost decided, hey, you know what? We, because we disagree with each other about where each other's shit can be. Let's just exterminate human life off the planet because, damn it, that will show them. I mean, it was close. It was a, a multi-day crisis. And being a child of the Cold War, um, I just think there's so many things that my generation 
gained. I hate to put it this way. We gained as far as perspective from that. And so much shit that the, the young generation, your piddly crap doesn't matter. You know what? You don't live with the real possibility that tomorrow you're going to hear sirens go off and the whole damn world is going to be evaporated into nothing. And, and we were close to it. My grandmother was uh, stationed, I believe, in Lebanon. My grandfather was stationed in Lebanon at the time. Uh, and my grandmother and, and he, I remember my grandmother telling me the story when it got really close. And he knew more than most people on the outside did. He was a military intelligence officer, fairly high up in military intelligence. And he was like, it's, it's a coin flip. That's what he told her. He said, honey, it's a coin flip. They got a bottle of wine and they, this, this house that they had rented, they have all the flat roofs with like the terraces on the roof. They went up and sat on the roof, had a glass of wine with each other, figured if it was going to go off, it was going to go off. And uh, people were thinking about hiding in holes and stuff, and he just said, it's not going to matter. Where we are, it won't matter. So you might as well just go out, go out in a place of glory, basically. And this phone, this connection... Disability for the President of the United States or his appointed representative to immediately talk to the Soviet Premier or his duly appointed representative over issues that were critical like we're going to blow each other up. Because one of the parts of this was an agreement that we won't just use, like, I won't bother you because I want to know what kind of vodka I should, I should serve at the White House, right? Um, was an incredible step toward reducing the possibility of annihilating the entire human population. And, and I have a suggestion for members of this audience that are under, I'd say, 35, and certainly under 30. There's a TV series that's not grounded in full reality. In fact, it's a sci-fi thing. It's designed to go outside of the norms. Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Not the remake in the 1980s. It was on Showtime or HBO or whatever. The original black and white ones. I think if you have Netflix and you're under 30, you would do well to go watch the first couple seasons of The Twilight Zone. About every other episode is going to deal with nuclear war. And it will put in perspective for you the fear that existed in the population of nuclear war. You realize how big a deal this was on August 30th, 30th 1963, that the two countries capable of annihilating life on the planet decided, hey, you know what? It might be a good idea if we stop using, you know, telegram communications and letters to communicate with each other and actually freaking use this thing that was invented way, way, way long time ago by this bell cat to where we could actually talk to each other and not destroy the freaking planet. That happened again today in 1963. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your questions for the expert counsel The first one I have for you today is that question that Gary Collins led off with last week on choosing whether to t seek the services of a naturopathic doctor or a medical doctor. Doc, take it away. 
Hi, I'm Joe Alton, MD of Survival Top 50's number one reader's choice website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Amy Alton, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, we're the authors of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in Medicine, the Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700 page third edition. And we're also the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Gordon or Groden, who writes, Do you believe that it makes sense to go to both standard medical practices and also to more alternative methods? If so, how would you decide when it's most appropriate to go to an MD and when to an alternative? Details. While we don't go to see doctors very often, it seems like there are some circumstances where a chiropractor, homeopath, herbalist, etc. makes more sense. Many MDs view this as almost quackery. The other extreme is going solely to a chiropractor for stage 4 cancer. I understand that we're supposed to use the sense that should be common to all people, but for back and neck issues, a chiropractor may just be a better choice. I'm concerned that we become too sophisticated to rely on practices that have worked for ages. Thanks. Groden in Georgia. Gordon or Groden G? <laughs> Certainly. There are issues that should be dealt with conventionally and with modern medical science on your side. Your example about stage 4 cancer in chiropractors is one of them. Sometimes the amount of effect that a treatment has depends on the amount of belief a patient has that it will help them. This not only is true for herbal medicine, but a recent study also found the same thing with cardiac stents and chest pains. Also, as a matter of fact, with long-term survival and cancer patients as well. Now, having said that, herbal therapies oftentimes have lots of medicinal benefits, and I recommend them as well as life-saving cardiac procedures when they are needed. Now, think about my perspective. I write about situations where modern medicine isn't an option, like in some long-term disaster. All your conventional medicines eventually will run out, and all you'll have left are those plants that might have medicinal benefits. Doesn't it just make sense to learn what they do and how they could help you in good times or bad? A good medicinal garden is part and parcel of success for the survival medic. And why our survival medicine handbook now in its third edition goes over natural as well as conventional therapies for many different medical issues. So yes, it's a good idea to consider natural remedies and be informed and educated about them as well as conventional medicines in good times or bad. I would say that in normal times, you might consider, for mild conditions, trying the natural version of the remedy first. In serious situations, don't be afraid to break out the antibiotics, break out that traction splint, or if you're lucky, get that person to the next highest medical asset. Use all the tools in the medical woodshed, and you'll keep it together, even when everything else falls apart. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones. Hey, a big thank you for subscribing to our website at doomandbloom.net and for checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of books, medical kits, and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you succeed in good times or bad. And hey, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets 10% off anything at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks for listening. What I would like to add a little bit on, and Gary took it as a pure, like, the ND uh, and herbalist, and, and Bones stuck more to the herbalist, but the question also did invoke the concept of chiropractors. I think a good chiropractor is worth their weight in gold 
if they're used for what they're good for. There are some chiropractors that really believe that any any illness can be cured by aligning the spine correctly or aligning the body correctly. And I think those those people are dangerous, and it's not what they were taught in school. And chiropractors do go through extensive training. It is not uh, something you can do over correspondence or something like that. Um, but uh, my wife and I both have benefited from the use of a chiropractor. And I, I compl- I'm going to talk about the placebo effect that Bones alluded to in just a second. But I can tell you it's not, it's not, a, not a placebo effect. It's... it's uh, it's a totally different type of thing. It's it's an instantaneous relief at times with certain adjustments. And chiropractors would chiropractor is a thing would simply not be as successful as it is given the expense necessary for training and the cost of care. It it would not be successful if it didn't work. It's all, it would be a lot like saying massage doesn't work. Well, it makes you feel better. And I remember very specifically going to one of my wife's physicians with her one time. And I remember this lady making this statement about chiropractors. She said, well, they, they, yeah, it make you feel fantastic and it takes your pain away. But it's, you know, once you stop going to them, it comes back. And I remember looking her right in the face and saying, if somebody's dealing with chronic pain, how does that differ from the drugs that you prescribe? And she made a face, and you know the face that I'm talking, especially women, when they hear what they don't want to hear, but the reason they don't want to hear it is they don't have a good answer for it. Yeah. And uh, she said, well, yeah, but, um, and then whatever came after that wasn't worth remembering. And so I, I am a huge fan of chiropractic care. Uh, and I, I'll tell you that almost every professional athlete uh, uses chiropractic care as part of their maintenance and training. And and so I, I am a, a huge fan of chiropractors. However, not for stage 4 cancer, right? I, I think that's a completely valid point. So I think that we should remain open to just about everything, but then we should select what's best. It's back to the standard Spirco answer. It depends, right? Uh, next up, we have a question on... I'm going to say penmanship, but it's really more pen and pencil technique for my consular prees. And again, I think this could apply to a hell of a lot more than how to hold a pencil and how parents view little bitty things and how important they really are. This is Michael and Sula Prees with HaloBySue.com. Designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question comes from Anthony. Do you have any tips or recommended resources for young writers to properly hold their pens or pencils? My wife and I are debating if we should force our six-year-old into a proper technique or if we should let her hold the pen in whatever way works for her. Thanks. We love and appreciate your work. Well, thanks, Anthony. Pencil grip seems like such a small thing, but having watched Sue for almost 30 years, I know that a homeschooler can obsess on those small things. Yes, I can. Yes, Our son's been struggling with a math concept, and while we were out the other night, we ran into an acquaintance that was a homeschool math tutor, and after a short conversation, one of her suggestions was in line with what the ideas that Sue had, and so Sue was able to come home and start the very next day. Homeschoolers need community to talk these things over with. Having that conversation really helps. 
My first thought was to check Amazon for a tool because I'm a guy and I like tools. And they have tons of pencil grips options. These are really popular when I was uh, first in the accounting world, when everything was printed in tedious tiny boxes. Uh, but thanks to technology, we don't see many pencil gripping adults. So when I have a problem or a question, I love checking on YouTube and I research and I, you know, go YouTube, 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 and then we try one of those things. Like we would try a pencil grip and then, ah, it didn't work. Research, try a grip, didn't work. Research, try a grip. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But um, I would do that over and over and over again. Then what, that, that, if that still doesn't work, then where do you go from there? So actually what I tr- tried to do and learn over the years is to ask the right question first. Is my child ready for this concept? Are they ready for penmanship? And it's kind of hard to figure out, and that's why the advice of other people is very helpful. So I'd like to clarify the difference again between penmanship and writing. Penmanship is a process of putting pen to paper neatly. Writing is about ideas and concepts. So the Institute for Excellence in Writing has a primary writing lesson plan that teaches you to help your child retell stories in quick, organized ways. But um, please don't confuse your penmanship with your ability to tell a story. Building eye-hand coordination isn't just about penmanship. It's going to apply to every task your child needs to accomplish as they grow. But there are some gross motor skills you can work on and a fun way to build that ability without the tears and stress of printing a page just perfect. And permaculture principles apply here also. Before you plant a seed in the ground, you do a lot of prep work like building up the soil, making sure you have a water source, mulching, and sometimes it's winter and you just have to wait. Yeah, and the just waiting part can be really hard. So here is a one really fun project for eye-hand coordination that goes with permaculture. So you get little Dixie cups, you fill them with dirt, and you know how tiny radish seeds are, but they also grow really fast, so it's exciting. You put one little radish seed in each cup, and then you use an eyedropper to fill the to water the plant each day and that's this tiny little eye hand coordination that's really fun. So um, a lot of the eye hand coordination issues can be solved by just getting outside and playing in the dirt. You can provide your kids old spoons, funnels and other ways to move small bits of sand from one place to the other. I mean, we have sand now and everything. It's really funny. But pulling weeds and teaching them to pull from the base of the plant next to the soil, so they're not using their whole fist, they're just using the two fingers that you would use for writing. And um, picking flowers, watering plants with a cup, not a big watering hose, peeling their own f- bananas and oranges, doing as much as they can for themselves. Yeah, I've noticed that you try to start with real-life applications first. Yeah, so what can what, what do you do in real life that that skill is used for? So one of our new things, our new favorite things that I haven't used for a long time are sensory bins because our new little guys have lacked a lot of stimulus. And so these are really helping them explore new things, absorb textures and all kinds of stuff. So Pinterest has a million, million and one sensory bin ideas. But for you preppers, I'm sure you have 100 pounds of rice, beans or flour laying around and some gallon buckets or bins, even a plastic bag. Then you fill your bin with something like rice and put in a few small items for your child to discover in the bin. And that eye-hand coordination and feeling through this stuff really builds a lot of skill for them. So, for example, our four-year-old is working on recognizing the numeral five 
and the quantity of five. So we put five items in each of his bins. And as we've progressed, the items in the bin started out large and then got easy, which are easy to find, and then progressed down to smaller and smaller and smaller items. So um, we got to remember that our goal, our main goal is to understand our child and live like we wanted these kids we chose to have. And that takes an immense amount of time spent with them and sitting with them and learning about them and how they learn and what they like and dislike. And we'd really like to encourage you to take the time to create something like a Ben and sit down with them and have a conversation with them while they're going through it. Just the textures in a, in a bin. So the difference yeah. between some kids like, like sand and we'll put the hands in sand and some of our kids don't, don't like, like sand. sand. It sticks to you or whatever. And they don't yeah. like it. Or some of them like um, kidney beans and putting their hands in that. Yes. But others don't like to do kidney beans. Yeah, and Amazon has these new water beads that they feel kind of moist, and it's it's kind of funny to me, but there are people that have issues with touching things that are moist. And it kind of you're helping your child at three, four, five years old get past some of those sensory things so that they can enjoy more of life. And then the, the gripping a pencil. It's um, it's a time application, right? It's after yeah. a while what feels comfortable and what works. Yes. Um, but there's lots of ways of studying that. There's lots of ways of looking at it. But I think you're right. The question is, uh, is they, it the right time? Are you ready? Yeah. Are they ready for that? And then allow them to develop some of their own style in their handwriting and how they want to hold their pen because they're going to be holding it, not you. Through, you know, through the rest of their life, they're going to be holding that pen not you. So yeah. remember that. Yeah. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you to ask the right question. Is your child ready for what you want them to learn next? So I, I want to add a little bit to this, and I want to talk about how um, how parents worry about things that they really shouldn't. Um, there's a... An old saying, pick your battles, and it really applies to relationships. Uh, there was a pretty good TV series that went on for quite a number of years called That 70s Show. And uh, it, there was a, a whole scene in it where one of, the, one of the girls who was dating one of the guys, I don't remember if it was Jackie with uh, Kelso or somebody that was, it was uh, Donna dating Eric, it was something like that, and Kitty was kind of counseling the female and uh, she kept saying, pick your battles. And um, it's not the same exact thing. It's the same but different, man. Speaking of 70 show, Tommy Chong, right? It's the same but different, man. Like, pick the things you're going to worry about and, and pick the things that are actually worth worrying about. And how a kid holds a pencil in a day and age where probably by the time your kid who's learning how to use a pencil right now, almost no one will use a writing implement anymore. Uh, it'll be a stylus. Even when you're handwriting, it'll be on a tablet or something. In a day and age where schools aren't even grading handwriting anymore, it's pretty much going away. Schools are no, not even going to teach cursive anymore, and we're going to worry about how the kid holds a pencil. It, it would be like, you know, how, how the kid holds the reins of a horse at, at, at the dawning of a uh, of the horseless carriage, the car, and you live in a in a city where there's not going to be a horse in 10 years, and you're worried about, you know, not do they actually control the horse properly so that they don't die from the horse killing them in the next 10 years, but you know, it, it really it's not the proper technique. It's kind of like that. And I, I have to say this is easier said than done. 
I think when you become a grandparent, that it's not just being old. It's kind of like you went, it, 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 well, here's how I'll relate it. When I was in high school, our driver's education teacher told me, it will take you one year to become a reasonably good driver if you have the potential to be a reasonably good driver and you want to be a reasonably good driver for where we live. Because in one year, you will experience not just a year of time driving, but you will drive in all of the conditions seasonally that are present in where we live. And these will not just be things like ice and snow and rain, but the sun angle being very low in late winter and hitting you in the eyes and understanding how to deal with that. It getting dark earlier and dusk lasting longer as you move into winter. You In one year, you will experience everything that you can and so that everything that you, you come across next in your second year, you'll have already seen. And that's what I think grandparenting is like because you've raised children or child, depending on how many, all the way. You've dealt with everything from diapers to graduation. And you know all the things, even if you forget about them intrinsically, you know all the things that you worried were going to matter that eventually never mattered. So things that you see your kids worrying about with the grandkids, you're like, whatever. And it's funny because you pick your battles The grandkids obey you so much more than they obey their own parents. And kids look at you and think, well, well, you know, Papa Jack's easier on, on the kids than he was on me or whatever. No, I'm actually just as tough, maybe tougher, but I choose where to worry about it. And when I see something that I know isn't going to matter, just let it go. So if we tell the boy, hey, Here's a chore we need you to do. And he goes, no, I don't feel like it, which is a real response that we've gotten. It's a deep in the ass foot. Another 70s show reference for those that like the show. It's, I was putting foots in the asses long before Red Foreman was a character, though. I'll tell you that, right? But if it's how he's holding his pencil, when he's writing something, as long as he's writing it properly and he can understand what it is, I don't care. I'm not going to worry about it. And again, that's just like a metaphor for other things. There's so many things that you just don't worry about. Worry about encouraging children to want to learn. And if they're learning, get out of the way and let them learn. It's amazing what happens when you do that. And do all these other things that Mike and Sue were talking about to kind of develop these patterns and habits and things like that. So anyway, with that, let's move on to the next one. I have a question now. Uh, for John Pugliano, and this is on, you know, is a, is a market correction coming, and, and how he would respond to this article by, I'm going to put big air quotes around this, you can't see me, the financial genius is telling you the five things you need to do to be ready for when it happens. Here we go. Hello, TSP listeners. John in Moore Park sent in an article from CNBC, and the tagline says, As the bull market continues to break records, forecasters can't help but wonder how long the good times will last. Take these steps now so you're not surprised by a downturn. Well, John asked that I dissect this article, so let's take a look at it. Hey, first off, I do want to say, 
I'm not worried about this nine-year bull market that we're in right now, the fact that it is now the officially longest in history. And when I say that I'm not worried about it, I'm not any more worried about it now than I was when it wasn't the longest bull market in history. There's always a good 25-30% probability that we're going to see a market downturn. The risk is always there. It's always present. We should always be vigilant for it. And just because the market hits some type of an anniversary or a milestone shouldn't distort our judgment about the risks involved in being in the market. But in any case, let's take a look at this article that John and Moore Park sent in and let's see if we can get any valuable information out of it. The number one suggestion that they have here is that don't try to time the market. If I was reading this article, I would have stopped right there and not read the article any further. And the reason I wouldn't read this article any further isn't that I do or don't agree with that advice that you shouldn't time the market, but the reason I would no longer pay attention to the author of this article is that they were dishonest. At the very beginning, when they tried to lure you into reading this article, the tagline said, Take these steps now so you're not surprised by a downturn. Well, if the first thing that they're going to propose to me is to not try and time the market, then what they should have said is take this one step now, which is don't worry about the market, just dollar cost average in, and go about your business. Because that's in effect what they're saying. Ah, maybe I'm being a little too harsh on this, but that's the impression I get. Listen, I understand why people wouldn't want to time the market. It does make sense over long periods of time, particularly over 20 or 25 year time frames, to just simply dollar cost average into the market if you're going to make the assumption that we're in a growing economy. That has not worked well for people in declining or stagnant markets like the Japanese, for example. Take a look at a chart of the Japanese stock market, which is the Nikkei. Look at that over the last, oh, I don't know, 35, 40 years. When you see the long-term decline in stagnation in that market, which at one time was the second largest economy on the face of the earth, well, I think you can say that just simply dollar cost averaging into a market doesn't always make sense. The bottom line on don't try to time the market, I don't think that anybody can perfectly time the market. You'll always hear me say in my podcast that I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. So that means that I can't foresee unforeseen events. But what I can do is I can use my God-given mind and intelligence and apply that to the situations around me and look at market indicators, things like rising unemployment rates, increases in credit card defaults, a higher level of non-performing loans at banks, and stated policy changes from governments or federal reserves that affect things like fiscal or monetary policy that have an effect on tightening or loosening the money supply. These are things that are measurable. These are things that we can observe. And these are things that we can put together and try and assess probabilities to what may be beneficial or detrimental to the economy and therefore the stock market. So no, I don't think you can predict the future, but I think you can use your situational awareness to determine that it may be a good time to shift or rotate your positions in the stock market or to simply move out of it altogether and move into a cash or cash equivalent position. Okay, number two, have a defensive position. Well, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. I'd agree with that. Of course, in the next five or six sentences here that are under that category, they tell you nothing about what taking a defensive position may mean. For example, like moving into cash if you're trying to time the market. 
or perhaps buying protective puts, which would keep you in the market and perhaps cost you a 1% or 2% premium, but would put a floor underneath your overall losses. They don't describe that or mention that at all. They don't talk about having a diversified portfolio or trying to be invested in a variety of asset classes that are as uncorrelated as you can get them. There's no mention of that. There's also no mention of the ultimate defensive position that Jack always talks about, which is having, you know, at least 5% of your overall net worth in some kind of gold or silver or precious metal. Now, number three, I'm going to tell you straight up, I think this is financial advisor garbly gook. It says, align your portfolio with your goals. Well, I'm not really even sure what that means because what's the inference there? That you'd align your portfolio with someone else's goals? Or you would align your portfolio with objectives that don't meet your goals? I mean, why would you do that? I think number three should be restated and say, have realistic goals. Okay, item four, rebalance your portfolio once a year. Well, I got to tell you, I think this makes absolutely no sense. And you're going to say, John, you're against rebalancing your portfolio? No, I think you should rebalance your portfolio. I just don't think you should wait till once a year. I mean, rebalancing once a year ignores the realities of the marketplace. I guarantee you that if this year had you picked January 10th to rebalance your portfolio, you'd have had a significantly different result than had you rebalanced your position on March 19th. And that's because of market conditions. The stock market went through a correction and the nominal prices were all very much different on those two days because the market was different. So should you rebalance your portfolio? Absolutely. But I don't think you should do it once a year or once a quarter. I think you should be aware of the economy and the general market conditions and adjust your positions accordingly. Now coming to the end of the article, their fifth point is have some cash available. And it says that their recommendation is to have as much as 18 months of money in cash. Well, this is interesting because it doesn't say 18 months of what? Is that 18 months of living expenses? Is that 18 months of savings contributions? But the premise here is that you want to have some cash on hand so that if the market does pull back, you'll be able to buy into it. Well, this is really incongruent to the overall premise of the article because if you remember at the beginning, they told us not to try and time the market. And so if in fact they're telling you not to time the market, then why would you want to keep money in cash reserve to buy in on a market decline? I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I just don't think that this flows with the message of the article. Because they end the article by saying that if the market pulls back 40 to 50%, that this 18 months of cash that you have, that can be the buying opportunity of a generation. But remember, they started out the article by saying that you can't time the market and that that's a losing proposition. But hey, I'm not disagreeing with the premise that you should have cash available and on hand. I want to make sure that a certain percentage of my money is always liquid to where I can get access to it to take care of not only the immediate needs that I have, but also the the unforeseen things. Making sure that you have cash available to pay for things like insurance deductibles or to be prepared for events like when the transmission blows out in your car or if you break a leg and have to take a few months off work. But to simply have 18 months of cash sitting around to buy into the next 40% pullback in the stock market and to have that as part of my long-term goal and one of the five things that I should be doing as this market reaches its nine-year anniversary as a bull market, now I think that's kind of a dumb idea. 
As far as sound investment advice, you might want to go back and listen to the episode that Jack and I did on the richest man in Babylon. There we talked about the five laws of gold, and I think those concepts are much more relevant to building wealth than these five points from CNBC. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I got nothing to add other than whoo, 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 go, John, go. That was just spot on, evisceration. Anyway, I have a, a link to this piece of crap article uh, in the show notes if you care to read it. I'll, I'll put it to you this way, though. A lot of these articles like this, they're just whatever they think people will read at any given moment. That's, that's why they even exist. Once you have the market at an all-time high, you're going to put out some level of content that says, A market correction is coming, and why are you going to do that? Because everything's a cycle. The market will go down. But will it go down just because it's at an all-time high, longest bull run ever, or will it go down for reasons that actually have made the market go down in the past? And so are we done with this run yet? I don't know. How much upside is there? I don't know. But I do know this. There's always a potential for correction, and looking to things like government policy, unemployment rates, Housing starts, all of that stuff, way better than listening to CNBC, just saying. Anyway, next up I have a question on speculation and uh, mining alternative coins, some of the less mainstream ones, specifically Ravencoin, for Ben Fitz. Hey Jack and Survival Podcast listeners, this is Ben Fitz from Crypto Gulch. And on today's Expert Council, we have a question that comes from John in Kentucky. He asks... Since ASICs are taking over the more popular and mainstream coins, I've been looking for options to point my GPU rig towards for speculative hold positions. One coin that seems to be getting some hype recently is Ravencoin, X16R protocol, so designed to be ASIC resistant, and was released without any coins in reserve for the devs. He goes on to say the white paper is describing a coin that can be used to represent a physical asset, like a football ticket, He does say that this is similar to some other coins out there. Is there anything, in my opinion, that makes Ravencoin worth looking at as a mining option? Or is this another poo coin in the altcoin toilet? John, thank you for your question. I think in general right now, GPU mining is a speculative game. And what I mean by that is that the income has gone down right now because we don't know what's going to be the next big thing. What we were mining with our GPUs is not profitable anymore, or not nearly as profitable. That's okay. If you look at history over time, there is some coin out there right now that we don't know about that is GPU mineable that is going to be the next big thing. And we can speculate as to what that might be. And one of the speculations is that Ravencoin might be one of the next big things. If we look at the fact that Ravencoin is designed around a new algorithm which is supposed to be ASIC resistant, that's a good thing. That helps attract miners. That miners also are people who are interested in cryptocurrency. So it helps develop the community around Ravencoin and helps drive demand, helps drive people tweeting about it, talking about it on blogs and Facebook and YouTube and things like that. All of that is good for for a cryptocurrency. There's a lot to be said for being the category leader in a specific algorithm. 
And our friends at Zencash, which have rebranded to Horizon, have talked about how um, that's a very beneficial thing to a coin is to be the top coin within that particular algorithm. So Ravencoin is the top coin using the X16R algorithm. So that does show some potential. Right now, they're pretty new. So the things that they talk about in the white paper, they haven't necessarily implemented yet. So there is some risk to Ravencoin. You can still mine Ravencoin profitably um, and, and not profitably necessarily if you're going to sell it today. If you're going to sell it today, then you're better off mining something like Ethereum probably. If you're looking at it long term and the potential success from a speculative standpoint, then you might want to look at coins like Ravencoin. Um, there are some other coins as well that you might want to look at from a speculation standpoint in terms of um, coins that are in top coins by market cap. You have Ethereum Classic. You have Bytecoin. Bytecoin is a Monero clone. Bitcoin Gold. There's still some potential for Bitcoin Gold. I'm not necessarily a fan, but there are some people speculating and mining Bitcoin Gold. A great one right now is Decred. I don't see enough people talking about Decred. Their team is fantastic. It can be mined by ASICs, but it can also be mined by GPUs. You can actually mine it in conjunction with Ethereum. So you can dual mine and mine Decred. So, you know, why not get some extra Decred um, while you're mining Ethereum, if that's what you're mining? There's some people that like Digibyte, Verge. Uh, these are some other speculative coins that you might want to get into. Some people still like Bitcoin Private from a privacy standpoint. I like Horizon. They used to be called Zencash, and they've renamed because they're really trying to build an entire platform. By the way, you know, I have to admit that I have one of the founders of Horizon as one of the advisors to CryptoGold. I do have an interest there. Um, some of the Monero clones that are out there, I already mentioned Bitcoin. You can look at like Loki or Aeon. Those are some other Monero clones that are out there that some people are speculating on. And you did mention Ravencoin. Ravencoin is definitely one of the coins that people are, are focused on with a lot of potential. So right now... It's hard to say whether or not a project is going to be a good project. The fact that Ravencoin is focused on a new algorithm is a good sign for it. If it really is an ASIC-resistant algorithm, that's a good sign. The thing to watch is I wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket if you're going to speculate on something, unless it's just purely fun money for you. So when you're speculating... Look at their white paper. Look at the technology that they're trying to implement. Look at what other cryptocurrencies are doing. And especially watch them over a period of time of a few months. And if they don't implement what they say they're going to do, then look for opportunities to get out of that crypto. Look for opportunities to sell and, and not hold on to it until it goes to nothing. There's a lot of projects out there that have good ideas that may not have the right team to implement them. Developers may leave. There may be internal conflicts in the right way to do something. All of these things can happen, which could drive people away. Another worry with a coin like uh, Ravencoin is how do they pay for the development team? 
So if they didn't reserve coins, you know, and, and I don't know, I, I haven't looked into Ravencoin, are they setting aside a percentage of the block rewards or something like that to go into a DAO or a treasury? That's something that's useful. Some of the other coins have a treasury, and they can use that treasury to pay for developers. Why is that important? Because in two years, the developers could leave the coin, or heck, two months, they could leave the coin. They could get a better offer, and they could go work for somebody else that does have a treasury that can pay six figures to a developer. So good developers won't stay with the free projects unless it's a passion project. There's too much money out there. If you can get half a million dollars, and, and the best developers can, to go work for another coin, you're going to do that, you know? Or you're going to go work for a company like IOHK that is is hired by a lot of crypto projects to develop coins, and, and they even have their own project. They're like a blockchain development company. So you can go work for a company like IOHK. So uh, I do like Ravencoin for potential for the future. It remains to be seen whether or not it's going to be a top coin, but it is one of the coins that does have some potential. Thank you, everybody. This has been Ben Fitz, the expert council member on cryptocurrency for the Survival Podcast, and my website is CryptoGulch.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Good stuff from Ben, and, and I, I'm starting to see a point where I think we're starting to see kind of the turnaround in, in the crypto market, and uh, we're starting to see pretty good sustained uh, regains from a lot of uh, coins. And I also still say that this is going to be the great purge, that a lot of the stuff that people talk about as being the next big thing and have been talking about being the next big thing for a long time uh, will not be here in a year. And wherever it is now, it's probably as good as it's going to get. Um, I'm not saying that about Ravencoin. I, I don't really know much about Ravencoin. Um, I know more than I did before listening to Ben, just to, to drive it home. Uh, but I'm just saying, like, this is not a time to go and run and buy something because selling for half a cent. You need to understand why you're buying, what you're buying, and what it really does, and what the application of it is that's not done by you know one of these mainstream coins. I know this question was about mining, but I'm talking a little bit more from the investment standpoint, which mining is, by the way. If you're using that energy or buying equipment to mine right now, you're investing in that coin. It's, it's just a different way of doing it. Uh, let's take another one. This one is a question from Michael Jordan on wax moths. You can take all the tea and chat. Put it in a big brown. Bad for me. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, your pocket guy to be, apiary management and the making of fine needs. I got a question from R.J. Cox and Matt Powers of the Permaculture Student. R.J. wrote a question, getting ready for fall honey harvest next weekend. We have five hives, lost one to wax moth. We lost two hives last year from the same thing. One contaminated super, the other one ran over by a wax moth. Any pro tips to avoid this? Our hives are located 20 feet from the wood edge. Do we need to move them out into the field? Current location gives them good winter sun and protects them from the north winds. Also thinking of using top bar hives or hollow logs to offset the replacement cost of losing the hives. Any thoughts? <laughs> Lots of good stuff here, so let's hit it. 
Wax moths are moths that sneak into the hive and lay eggs in the honeycomb. Where the eggs hatch, the wax worm will then eat through the beeswax, honey, pollen, sometimes even the bees' larvae and pupa. As they eat their way through the hive, they leave a trail of web and feces. The webbing hinders the bees from being able to hatch uh, and to catch the worms and to remove them from the hive. The bees can't use the wax or even clean it when the webbing is started. It usually only takes 10 to 14 days to destroy a hive, so treatment is needed immediately once webbing starts. In a strong colony, the house bees will find and remove waxworm before damage is done. In strong hives, there's no need for wax moth treatment. Let the bees do what they're supposed to do. In a weak hive, waxworms, like I said, will destroy it in 10 to 14 days. Once the wax moth worms populate, they spin through the cocoons into the wood of the hive. The cocoons are so tough, the bees can't remove them. They literally drill into the wood, ruining the structure for the hive. Once the moth emerges from the cocoon, they fly off, mate, and the cycle starts all over again. So let's get with the question. First, make sure your hives are strong. Downsize them before you winter them so that they're full of bees. Make sure you winter your hives and seal them up good and that they have good airflow from the base to the top. And this will help a lot for wintering. Now, 10 feet in the air and 5 feet behind the hives, place a light in a one-gallon bucket half full of water in the air. Uh, you can also place a bug zapper at that location. Get it just away from the hives, but in the location. Mass, love the flame. When you get the moss going, they're going to go right to the light, drawn to the water bucket, they fall in the bucket, die. Removing them from mating, and this will start reducing your growth population. To treat the hive, there are a few things to do. Glory B makes a product called Paramoth Wax Moth Crystals. It's para uh, D-I-T-C-H-L-O-R-O-Benzene. Uh, basically, it's like mothballs. It's generally composed of either nathapline or PDCB, which is this dichethylene benzene. Only use this after honey harvest. It's not good for human consumption, just like mothballs. I wouldn't really put them in my hive, but it is a treatment, and it's sold by Glory B as a wax moth treatment and works and works very well. It's known as one of the best treatments for infestation. I think Vita makes a good bee product, V-I-T-A. It's called B401. It's math, wax moth control. It controls wax, max, wax moth. It's safe and environmentally friendly uh, based on uh, a solution of biocillus. I think it's called Thurgenesis, T-H-U-R-G-I-G-I-E-N-E-S-S. It's a microorganism. Uh, BT uh, is a strain of products of crystal proteins. Uh, called endotoxins. Uh, man, they, they go right into action. And it's, uh, right now they're leading uh, uses for insecticides. It's right now leading the control for mosquitoes and gnats. It's a bug killing bugs. So that's a bioweapon used by bugs killing bugs. Uh, more organic, more natural. A wax moth cannot survive in the winter temperatures and freezing temperatures at any life stage. Uh, it's great news for us beekeepers who live in freezing. However, they can survive in warm areas such as basement, garages, and hives. So just because you live where it freezes, don't think you won't have wax moth. But since they can't survive in the freezing temperature, it's really a good idea to freeze the frames and boxes for 24 hours before storing them. We keep an old chest freezer just for this purpose. For storing your supers, don't store them in dark places like a garage or basement. 
Wax moths do not like sun. They prefer the dark and warm places. If you live where there's snow, preferably find to store your boxes outside in the freezing temperatures and the wax moths and worms will die. If you leave them where it doesn't freeze, you can still store boxes outside, but let the sun helps deter the wax moths. So keep them in full sun. Where you stack your boxes for storage, try to stack them off the ground in crisscross fashion so that the light and air can get all the way through them. They can be stored in covered sheds or put uh, corrugated fiberglass panels over them to protect them uh, from the rain. But I think your best bet is to find a nice open greenhouse. Uh, store them in the open sun and they can freeze in the winter. If you've had problems, scrub them with bleach and water and then lay them out in the sun to dry. Or do not, or do a lie dip. Now remember, lie is dangerous and needs special equipment. Uh, but always clean your supers if you've had problems and always clean them before putting them back in the hive into use. When our hives were destroyed by hive uh, moths, we scraped the frames in the supers. We let our backyard chickens help us clean out the worms by letting them pick through our scrapings. When the chickens were done, we buried the scrapings and then scrubbed the frames and boxes with bleach and water and left them in the sun to dry. Uh, we checked on the boxes and frames again before using them, and uh, we were able to manage the highs without using pesticides and placing the light in the back to start absorbing um, breeding habits of the moth. A good way to determine to lure them away from the hive is giving them someplace else that smells wonderful and trap them. Making homemade wax moth traps is easy and effective way you just need a two-liter bottle from a sports drink, one banana peel, a cup of vinegar, two cups of sugar, and a cup of hot water. Cut a small hole in the empty soda bottle right below the shoulder, about the size of a quarter. Put the hot water and sugar in a glass bowl, a jar, and mix them together. Use a funnel to pour the mixture and the hot water solution into the bottle. Put the banana peel in the bottle. Put the lid back in the bottle, and it will ferment and draw the moss to it. Like I said, put this several feet behind your hives. The goal is to lure them away from your hives. Like I said, also you can put that out there, put the bucket of water, even uh, electric fly traps. I think this is about the best I can do for you. On the stuff about uh, top bar hives or log hives, catch me on another question. Those are two great topics that I could cover on repopulation, how to build them and do stuff. So uh, catch me on a question for that on log hives or top bar hives. Uh, catch me on Facebook at AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or email me at abfriendlycompany.com. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry and get them started and get a great product out there from me to you. And always, from me to you, help your fellow man. Because I'm going to tell you, one day you're going to need help too. Next up, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on choosing a coffee grinder. You can listen to her confess to abusing the hell out of my little $15 coffee grinder and destroying it and other recommendations she has after that. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here taking a question from James about something near and dear to my heart. Coffee grinders. Yep, that's right. He wants to know what kind of coffee grinder he should buy, what I recommend, what Jack recommends. And he says, you know, high end, low end, whatever. He just wants the down low on coffee grinders. And that just happens to be something that I've played with a little bit. Now, I got to be upfront here. I haven't tried every coffee grinder I'm going to talk to you about today. I've tried some of them, but 
when I expanded Holler Roast, I ended up with a commercial grade grinder for, you know, it's worth about 400 bucks. And that thing really does a good job. Not going to lie. It grinds the heck out of some coffee. But why would you spend $400 on a coffee grinder for home use? I don't think you would. Not a good idea. So I already know what Jack recommends. And I've put together a page over at hollerose.com, sent a link to Jack, went to T-Spaz, typed in coffee grinder, and the Mr. Coffee $15 option came up. It's a Mr. Coffee 12 cup electric coffee grinder with multi settings. So you can say like how many cups, what grade grind. It's a really good grinder. Unless you're me. If you're me and exuberant and you put beans above the fill line, which is 50% of the chamber, you kill it. I've killed one of his at his house. Like, so if you're looking for durability and you're an over exuberant person, don't get this. However, most normal people could totally do it. You just got to pay attention to the fill line. Other than that, there, there are a couple of options. So basically when you're grinding coffee or getting grinders, there are two approaches. There's the burr grinder and there's the one with the rotating blady thingy, like a, a spice mill. And they have pros and cons. Like the, the one with the rotating blade is usually cheaper. That's what the Mr. Coffee is. And the downside is that when it grinds the coffee bean, it's going to give you different sized little grounds. Like some will be bigger, some will be smaller, some will be powder, right? Okay, so not a big deal unless you're a total coffee snob, which sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. And for, you know, 15 bucks, the Mr. Coffee's really not a bad way to go. However... If you feel like you want to put a little bit of elbow grease into what you're doing, you can also just shell out about the same amount of money and get a hand grinder. So they make burr grinders and burr, it, it's just, it, it's like two, it's almost like two stones grinding next to each other. So the burr grinder yields consistent, consistent sized grounds so that when the water comes on them, like every ground that it hits is about the same size and you have a consistent coffee brew and a little less powder residue in the bottom of the cup. So I'm going to just go through a couple of grinders and the benefits from top to bottom and the simplest thing to do and the cheapest thing to do if you want that more consistent ground is buy a hand-powered burr grinder. This is what I use when I travel. So I'm a... I like coffee a lot, guys, in case you don't know. So I go on business trips, and I have an OxyFame, and it's a burr grinder that is cylindrical, and it has a hand crank that I can detach, and it all fits in a handy little bag, and the thing's like 14 bucks. And I put my coffee in there. I've already set it to the size ground I want. And I I crank the handle for about, you know, three minutes or so. And I end up with enough for my coffee in the morning. That's that's how I start my day when I'm in a hotel. And with that, I, I don't actually pack a, a, a coffee maker or any of those fancy things that truck drivers use I, I or a, like a French press. I just... 
most hotels use the Keurig now. So I have a little stainless steel Keurig thing that I put that in. It's, it's not as good as the coffee as I get at home, but it's good. And at home, if I need to grind, this OxyFame is really good because it's a burr grinder. You have a very consistent ground. So the water stays on each little piece of coffee for the same amount of time. Okay. So that's the snobby result. There's also the Java press, which is the same grinder, but a little bit higher quality. And it does not come with the handy travel bag. And I have to admit, I bought the OxyFame because I'm a cheapie and I saved $6 and the results were close enough. But if you're like really, 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 really particular, like the OxyFame, the, the internal, it's it's got porcelain um, grinding wheels. It almost works like a pepper grinder. And that the the wheel kind of sometimes wobbles a little bit, which might give you some grounds that are not perfect. So the Java Press is also a really good version of a hand burr grinder. A lot of friends of mine who order coffee from me and like to hand grind their coffee in the morning use the Java Press. Okay, so those are the hand burr grinders. If you want to up your budget a little bit, like both of those are under 20 bucks. Like the Java Press is 20 and the OxyFame is like 15, I don't know, around there. The electric burr grinders are even better. And if you want to spend 100 or 150 bucks, you can get the Capresso, which sits on your countertop. You put the beans in the top. It falls through the burr grinder and into a little collection cup. And then you take that cup and you put it into your coffee maker. That thing is, as I said, 100 bucks, 150 bucks, depending on which one you get. I've never personally used it. I have talked to a lot of friends who have used it, and they love it. There's also a Cuisinart for 40 bucks that does the same thing. It's not quite as high of a consistency as the Capresso, but it's 40 bucks. And that's 100 bucks. So you just really need to weigh your budget, like how much are you going to spend on your coffee? So those are two electric burr grinders, both of them good, both of them reputable. Here's my problem with them, though. They are things that sit on your countertop. I don't know about you, but I already have too many things that sit on my countertop. I have a really wonderful espresso maker that sits on my countertop. There's a microwave there. There are some other things that sit on my counter that got to have your Berkey, right? Where does that go? On your countertop. So... I try to avoid having too many additional appliances on my countertop and the electric burr grinders are just freaking big. That's the, like nobody's got like a nice, well, I haven't found a nice small one. If somebody knows of a small one, let me know, but they're just big and they sit there and they, they take this approach of the cone of coffee going into the burr grinder. So if you have room on your countertop, those are good. And if you want that consistent, grind without having to crank the handle of a hand grinder for five minutes in the morning. I totally understand. Get one of those. Then there's the spice mill or blender approach. And and this is what Jack recommends. He likes the Mr. Coffee, which is a rotating blade, which works pretty much like your blender does. So if you have a blender, you already have a coffee grinder of this. It, it, so do you need that extra one? I don't know. The Mr. Coffee is cool because you can be like, I want eight cups. I want a fine grind. Bzzz, and it's done. 
And you can also use it to grind spices. I personally don't grind spices and coffee in the same one. I have one for coffee and one for spices. But you can. So at least you kill two birds with one stone there. But as some of you may know, last year at the fall workshop, I completely killed Jack's coffee grinder. Because, as I said, I was exuberant, and every other one of those kind I've ever used did not have a fill line. The fill line was the top of the chamber, and then there was this plastic lid that has more space. And, yeah, I killed it. So he got out his Ninja Blender, and we used that. And that's, you know, blenders work the same. So you can blend up like three days worth of coffee if you want to. Of course, I, as your coffee advisor, would not recommend that because you want to bl- you want to grind it fresh every day so it's tasty. But okay, I know the reality of life is some of y'all don't want to wake up your spouses in the morning with the coffee grinder, so you grind it on Sunday night for the rest of the week. I've totally heard that story. My spouse just has to deal with the fact that I get up and grind coffee and. The Ninja Blender worked really well. He took out his Ninja Blender. I didn't kill that, by the way. It's 99 bucks right now. I just looked on Amazon, 99 bucks. Mr. Coffee is $15. So then you have to ask yourself the question. Do I just want to use my Ninja Blender and not have an extra appliance? Or do I want to add this $15 appliance? And then there is the cream of the crop. The Braun, B-R-A-U-N, Braun coffee grinder. It's It's got the rotating blade. This is the coffee grinder my mommy had when I was like 10. This coffee grinder kicks butt. If you're going to go rotating blade, and the, the, the downfall of that is you're going to end up with an inconsistent grind, so you'll have some powder and some grounds, and you may end up with some of that sludge in the bottom of your cup, that sort of thing. But the Braun coffee grinder is a tank. I got one 20 years ago. It's been 20 years because I'm old. And it cost me 40 bucks. And like the base of it is plastic, right? That base is broken off and I still have the thing and it still grinds coffee and I can cram as many beans in there as I want to and it does a great job. 20 years later, I still have this thing. And apparently people have realized how how long the brawn lasts. And they now cost $150. So it's a great grinder if you're going to go the rotating blade method. This thing is a tank. It will probably last you the rest of your life. However, it's $150. If you're going to already spend $150 on a coffee grinder and you don't have a Ninja Blender, I'd be like asking myself that question and or is it better just to get the burr grinder for a hundred dollars? They're about the same price point, and I can tell you this: the burr grinder for a hundred dollars is going to give you a better result than the rotating blade. So that's what I have to say about coffee grinders, and of course, the commercial ones are awesome. But you know, if you grind a whole pound of coffee and then it sits around for a few weeks, it does start to taste stale and that's not something I usually recommend, although I understand sometimes we don't like to grind coffee in the morning. Anyway, if you want to know more about me, you can check me out at livingfreeintennessee.com. If you're interested in coffee, hollerroast.com is the place to go to check it out. I have put together a page with links to all of these 
coffee grinders so you can check them out yourself on Amazon. And I sent that to you, Jack. Okay, guys, go out and make it a great week. And I'd just like to add a little bit about that and that coffee maker that I recommend. If you look it up at T-Spaz, if you put Grinder in on the Survival Podcast website in our search bar, uh, you'll find it real quick. And it's about a $15 uh, product made by Mr. Coffee. And I, I've only ever seen two of them destroyed. One I destroyed because I tried to grind, I'll admit it, oyster shells with it. Uh, we needed some really finely ground oyster shells for some chick quail and the stuff we had was really, really coarse, and I wanted to see if it would work. And it actually did, but it all also ruined it. And then the one Nicole did, and she, she's underselling a little bit what she did to it. There is a line that says, don't fill it past here. And she didn't just fill it a lot. She filled it to, like, you had to cram the lid on the damn thing to get it to work. I think she was, once it was ground up some and taking up less space, adding more. She's trying to really grind a lot of coffee for a lot of people uh, for three days as fast as she could under the circumstances. And, yeah, my ninja did a good job with it. That grinder, if you don't abuse it, will last a long, long, long time for grinding coffee. However, I actually don't have it to grind coffee with. I use it to grind coffee with on occasion. And she's right about the fact that basically when you're using any kind of a blender type spinning blade technology to grind coffee, the longer you grind it, the finer it gets, but some of it's really fine right away, even when some of the rest of it's thick. So a consistent grind of a specific size, which is what coffee drinkers that are really you know picky want, and I understand why, is difficult to achieve. But it does the job when you have a bag of beans and you need to grind them. I actually, when I need to grind a significant amount of coffee after my experience with the Nutri-Ninja, I use my Nutri-Ninja, and it works fantastic for grinding a significant amount of coffee. It's got a hell of a lot more horsepower. It's got a bigger motor than a little coffee grinder. That grinder I recommend primarily as a spice grinder for grinding things like cumin seeds, for grinding things like large rosemary into smaller bits, for grinding bay leaves so that it, it blends into a spice mix. It's not just a big leaf that you throw into a stew. Uh, for grinding coriander, for grinding any kind of a whole spice or herb that you want to store whole so that when you crack it, or even if you're doing black pepper and you're using a tablespoon of black pepper, a tablespoon of black pepper with a pepper mill is just a pain in the ass. Pepper mills are for a little bit on your food or a little bit into the pot, you know. Um, you, you throw it in there, you pulse it a couple times, and you, you get the consistency you're looking for. And the reason I recommend the Mr. Coffee one, and I have a link to a, a, a page on her website where she has all of these listed for you, um, is mainly because they all work. All of these little grinders like this for you know somewhere between 10 and 20 bucks work just fine. But the Mr. Coffee one has a little dilly whopper in it that you kind of spin around with your finger. It cleans it out real good. And it's much easier to clean. And after abusing my coffee maker, uh, Nicole did buy me a new coffee maker, which I gave away. Or not a coffee maker, my grinder. She got me a new grinder, which I gave away. It was also by Mr. Coffee's different model. And it didn't have a little Dilly Whopper spinner thing in it. And I gave it to somebody else and bought myself a new one with the Dilly Whopper spinner thing in it because I like it. And it works really great as a spice grinder. So that's the one that I recommend for that in intent and purpose. Uh, next up, I have a question on 
converting farmland into a homestead, doing things in a natural way when it's been conventionally farmed. Here's the here's this kind of the, uh, the the statistics or the the details on it. So this comes from Kent, and I, I just got an update. So we are going to hear not just from Nick Ferguson, also Ben Falk and Jeff Lawton. I'm recording this portion uh, on Friday morning. I uh, haven't gotten everything else done Thursday afternoon, and everybody got back to me, so I have no idea what Nick or Ben or Jeff had to say about this. I'm going to go ahead and give my answer to it, then I'm going to play them, then we'll come back and close up. I thought that would be interesting for a change. Again, here's the question from Kent. What to be prepared for when starting a new one-acre homestead on traditionally farm ground in southern Arkansas? Kent says, my son has had the good fortune to have been offered free of charge from a family member one acre, of a 1,000-plus acre farm about an hour south of Hot Springs, Arkansas. The farm is a traditional operation rotating soybeans and rice on what they call sharky or buckshot clay soil. My son and I have lived our whole life in the Midwest and have virtually no knowledge of soils, weather conditions, laws, or anything else outside our little world. He is excited, smart, and eager for the challenge. There are ditches along the road, so there will be a need for a culvert installation as one of the first things I'd assume. The next step we would think would be to place a 14 by 40 shed on the corner where utilities are available at the road, which he has frontage, and finish the inside for his residence for him and his wife. They want to do all this to keep out of debt and plan to live in this for the foreseeable future. Apparently, Arkansas has almost no regulations for construction other than for septic. We are thinking of composting toilet may be the best for this clay soil, no trees, initial cost savings as well. He is thinking he will follow the direction given many times before, start at the doorstep and design that, maybe a kitchen herb garden, and work out from there. One exception may be fruit trees to plant out a ways because it's being a clear field. My son is self-employed and can work anywhere. He can get good internet, but there are so many other questions that we don't even know what to ask. If you could give us any suggestions on how or where to start this voyage, it would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Kent. Uh, let's start out with what I'm not going to worry about. I am not going to worry about fertilizers, herbicides, anything like that. This is a farm. Uh, he has a free acre of ground. There's some things you can do over time that will mitigate that some, but... People get really worked up and worried about this, and I'm going to say that in a residential community where you're taking care of your backyard, most of your neighbors are true green chem lawning anyway, and in reality, they're probably using more chemicals than a farm because true green chem lawn makes its money how? By coming every month and spraying every month. Right, And your neighbors are going out and buying big bags of crap, it, spreading it around. So when you live in a suburban neighborhood, you live in almost the exact same type of environment. Now, it's true they're not crop dusting herbicides and stuff like that. It could be a problem. If it comes up, then you deal with it as it comes up. So we're just going to let that go. On the soil, um, if you want to do a composting toilet to save money, great. If you are thinking of that instead of a septic because you think it's difficult to do a septic in this environment, that's not the case. So I, I had to look up buckshot clay soil, and the reason they call it buckshot clay soil is that it is like a really, like you call it gumbo clay, but when it dries out, it can break up and a little crumbles. And uh, it's not the most well-drained stuff in the world. It does grow really, really well. You, stuff grows really well, and it's high in mineral content and things like that. And drainage is something that if you, if you do the soil stuff I'm going to talk about a bit, it takes care of itself over time. So it, it does. It doesn't drain exactly really well uh, overall, but do. 
So you can do whatever you want. On the shed, I think this is a fantastic idea. Your number one expense in this climate is going to be air conditioning. So I really recommend that you budget in structural foam insulation to spray the shed environment. They would probably do a sprinkler-based um, aerobic system in that environment, but it isn't hard at all. And it's, it's very deep. Uh, the soil's down there. You can dig and dig and dig and dig. There's potential to do ponds eventually. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, but that's something I'd be looking for where pond sites might be as you're doing this uh, because that might change a little bit about where you want the, the structure to go as well. But let's not rule out a septic because of the soil. That's, that's not really something we need to be doing. If you can put a septic system where I am, you could put it there. It's going to do two things. It's going to cut your electric bill dramatically. And two, since you're doing like a prefabricated shed kit conversion, it is going to improve the structural integrity of the building a great deal. I would give some thought to uh, finding some sort of a tornado shelter that you can put in. Again, the soil, a backhoe, a trackhoe, they're on a farm. There should be some equipment available to them. Um, that is an area with significant tornado threat, and I don't want to be in a tough shed during a tornado. So I'm talking about little small, they call them Freddy holes, like Freddy hole, a Freddy hole, right? little Freddy hole or something. That might be worth installing long term. It will make your life easier when you're out there in the middle of a big field and you have major storms coming in, you're monitoring your weather. So those are some things with the living conditions. I don't want to go too long on this, but those are two things that I would really look at. Again, structural foam insulation and um, some sort of tornado shelter option. Additionally, like I said, septic, going composting to save money, fine. But as far as installing a septic tank, easy peasy. Couldn't be easier soil conditions to do it with. On growing, you are going to have a, a, a situation here where The ground has been hit with, you know, Roundup. Because if they're doing soy, they're doing GMO soy. I, and it is what it is, right? Uh, and if they're doing some other rotations like rice, they might be coming in with, like, atrazine is used a lot of time in gra grass crops. So you do have some icky gick there. I wouldn't worry about it. What I would do is wherever you want to start your gardens, mulch, 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 and mulch. Get a good source of compost that's not got a problem with herbicides. Lay down a layer of that. Get organic matter wherever you can get it. Don't get it from the farm. Because what you're trying to mitigate, it's all in there. And build up lasagna-type layered beds, raised beds. And as you do that and you're building soil above the, the soil line, you're going to have uh, basically that buffer zone. And good compost and good organic matter forgives many things. Use good organic fertilizers. Um, One of the big problems you have with soil and agricultural climates is you'll test it. It'll test through the roof. It's having plenty of phosphorus and potassium and all. The problem is a lot of it ends up being in a, a form the plants can't actually access because you don't have any biological life available. So they say, well, you don't need it or it's over-fertilized. And what, what it is is it's like, it's, like, it's like being in the desert and you're, you're tied up. You know, your, your arms and your feet are tied up and somebody puts a bottle of water in your, your hand. And the thing that will save your life, you're holding it, but you can't drink it. It's kind of like that for the plant. So you want your biological activity going on. And I wouldn't even worry about soil testing. Um, start small, move slow. Definitely plant trees. Trees are going to do fine. Trees in general will do fine. I would look at beginning to plant trees along the perimeter of whatever property they give you. 
creating kind of a riparian zone between the farmland and his homestead. And what you might find is over time, as his homestead comes around, that he is going to end up in a situation where his family members may come in and go, what's going on here? And that, that's, that's a very good thing. It's a very good opportunity to kind of enlighten people to a more natural way of doing things. I would stay away from livestock other than maybe a small flock of chickens at first that he can use to process kitchen waste and things like that. Uh, that would be a, actually a really valid thing. But if you're going to do that, since you probably don't have the budget to put in good solid fencing to keep the birds in right away, I would go with some sort of coop and running. You need to make sure that they have enough shade. But a coop and run with four little chickens... And feed them whatever you can get. Don't worry about it, you know. And let them process that waste. And maybe doing a, a old school Victory Garden style setup where put the coop and run in the first year. Just let it be what it is. But think about this when you do it. That run is going to be a garden next year. And over winter, build them another run on the other side of the coop. And then move them and then garden there. That's probably your easiest way and fastest way to mitigate soils. Here's why. GMOs like glyphosate, atrazine, etc. Uh, not GMOs, uh, herbicides like that. The, the fastest way to break them down is exposure to UV light. So a lot of you want to go in and heavily mulch right on top of that soil. And like I said, for your herb garden and whatnot, you may want to do that. But if you just start mulching everywhere, you actually are going to increase the life of the, the half-life of those chemicals. By letting the chickens get in there, kind of work the ground for a while, and then start throwing organic matter in after they've kind of cleared that area out, you're going to expose that stuff to UV light, and it's going to degrade and break down. If that wasn't the case, farmers wouldn't have to spray those chemicals every year. So those chemicals are not as persistent as, as some people on the far uh, end of the eco-extreme have led us to believe, Paul Wheaton. Okay, They do break down much quicker, especially under UV light. So that's kind of the overall approach that I would take. And I would also say, go slow, take your time. An acre doesn't seem like a big piece of land, but an acre will wear you out. It will wear you plumb out. And uh, don't be afraid to take the advice of the people around there that are doing conventional farming. I, I would not use the chemicals they're going to recommend, but their overall recommendations are a lot better than we... We get elitists as permaculturists, as organic gardeners, etc. Like, like, they don't have anything to teach us. These guys feed the country. They know about growing food. And they will tell you things that are wrong, like, oh, it won't work unless. Well, you know, you temper that advice. But don't be afraid to take some advice. Look for the people around there that are gardening. And this is why I say not to get too wrapped up around the fact that you're surrounded by this farm and probably other farms, is when you go by a farm like this, you always see massive amounts of growth in the drainage dishes that you were talking about, right? So if that is indeed the case, then we know that nature heals the wounds. So that's what I have to say. And now I'm going to sit with you and listen to Ben Falk. Nicholas Ferguson and Jeff Lawton address the same issue, and I think this will be a pretty cool way to end our week. Hey there, this is Nick Ferguson from the Expert Council with an answer for Kent, who happens to be one of my old clients from years ago, on setting up a new homestead. Uh, Lord, this is a big question, and... I didn't really know where to start when I first read it, so I've written down some bullet points to help me run through things as quickly as possible because I know I have a time limit. So first off, I'm going to assume that since it's rice farmland in Arkansas, 
that there's probably not much of a grade. So this – you might run into an issue where it's easy to not notice how the water is going to be traveling over land. I'm going to assume that generally this is going to be pretty flat, so it's going to be a little bit difficult to just gauge it by eye. So straight off the bat, I'd assess the landform and see where the flooding dangers are. I would bring some water out there. If you have a laser level or can get one or a transit level, I would do a little bit of a survey because, you know, getting tools on the ground to actually mark the contours or the general slope is going to really help you determine where the slope is going, where the valleys are, and determine where that storm water will run off. And you because you don't want to place a building where it will dam up the overland water flow. It's really bad for foundations and can lead to seriously expensive repairs in the future. So I would build high and dry. You might want to actually build up that uh, that house pad or that structure pad, the building pad. Build it up out of the way of any flood water. I don't know what you're looking at around you with landform and if you can't build up like that, then you want to build where water will naturally want to be leaving the site, not flowing into the building site. The house where I live is one that my grandparents, who are long gone, uh, they built to retire in years and years ago, and it's built in an L shape that cups the land above it so all of the driveway runoff and the hard surface runoff and the inside of that L, all that roof runoff, is caught by the whole structure foundation like a dam. It's very bad engineering, and I don't want you to make the same mistake because it'll lead to lots of problems in the future. Second, uh, I build with gardening in mind. You're going to want to place the structure so you can get the earliest morning sunlight on the garden site while protecting from the afternoon sun as much as possible. Get the Sunseeker app or just go observe the solar path and pick a good location for the building where you can garden with morning sun exposure. Third, I'd very quickly be concerned with building up as much of a windbreak as you can to help reduce overspray or drift from pesticides. I think it's going to be a major concern. I'd look into fast-growing trees like Morris Alba, which is white mulberry, Polonia tomentosa, which is royal empress tree, hybrid poplar. And in this circumstance, you can probably be fine with using Robinia pseudoacacia, that's black locust. I almost never suggest black locust to clients, but... It grows fast. It can be managed on an acre if you keep an eye on it and are diligent to not let it get out of hand. You should try and be as good of a neighbor as you can since this is free land. Holes in tractor tires make for very unhappy farmers. Fourth, honestly, it may be worth gardening under a shade cloth hoop house to protect from the intense sun and as an extra layer of protection from pesticide overspray. You should probably look into getting wicking beds or raised beds with imported soil and compost. I don't know on that. Depending on how long it's been conventionally farmed, there could be a ton of nasty residual pesticides that have been absorbed into that clay and are hanging around. So... Man, wood chips with fungal inoculant for your margins and added to the areas where water will be running 
onto the property would be good ideas to help mitigate the pesticide runoff. All right, I could probably go on for several hours, but Jack gave me a time limit, and looking at the email, it's either 57 minutes or 5 to 7 minutes, so I'll be good and assume I need to wrap it up. I hope this helps out, and I'm interested to hear what the other guys have to say on the question, too. All right, guys, I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Do good things. Okay, guys, I wanted to just play these together. Something happened to Ben Falk's recording. He did not record the whole thing. He starts out with talking about, of course, you need to grow food or something like that. So the front end of his got cut off. I'm going to go ahead and play what we have. I haven't heard it yet myself, but as I was putting the show together, I was like, wow, did I do that when I was moving stuff around the timeline? Went back to the original file and no. So there is some stuff missing here, but I still think we got some words of wisdom from Ben, and then we'll move on to Jeff. Of course, what you'll need to grow food um and make the site really productive and healthy um just be careful with where you get your biomass i mean wood chips are wood chips for the most part if you have some a lot of walnuts or something there that someone's chipping which is unheard of around where i live but it it does happen in some other places you know you might want to choose a a wood that's going to break down and not have um chemicals in it like uh walnut does that discourage plant growth for a while but I like to say all, bi- all biomass is good biomass. Um, that being said, you know, you might have horse farms near you that have a lot of chemical inputs like pharmaceuticals for the horses or sprayed pasture. Um, so try to make sure some, sometimes chemicals are bioaccumulated and concentrated in the composting process. So you want to make sure you're getting some stuff that's pretty clean, ideally. Um, but get as much organic matter as you can. And stockpile it in a really good place. Usually it's going to have to be an easy place for them to dump um, so you can actually get them to drop it off. Um, or you might have to go pick it up. Sometimes a trailer and a truck, you can park a trailer at someone's place and they can load for you. But usually people are getting rid of really valuable materials like compost and wood chips and spent hay in this country still. Um, get that all on site. You know, get a get an overall layout going for your gardens and um, start composting that material. Start getting your zone one gardens going. Start planting your property boundary. That's usually early on. Obviously, do a site assessment, as I mentioned before. Get a sense of your water and other resources. Try to hold water high. As you said, it's only an acre, so that may be relatively limited. But um, I didn't get a sense of existing infrastructure and buildings. That's a whole nother ball of wax but um and try to just you know do your homework by paying attention to the best working homesteads or examples of what you want to do in your area and try to visit them spend time with those systems learn from what people have found works in your area hi jeff lawton here coming to you from england actually en route to heathrow airport just about to fly to jordan so sorry about the background noise but uh, we're on a bit of a schedule okay this is an answer to kent's question in relation to the one acre uh what to expect question for arkansas i think that uh, in all these situations you're going to have to build organic matter pretty fast or bring in organic matter and get compost in my uh um thing is about building surplus and organic matter so you can build soils through organic processes also you're going to have to put up pioneer trees because they're quick and they'll rip into that uh, type of clay you've got so it's the type of legume trees that like those conditions get yourself up some shelter 
give yourself some future conditioning for food forests and, and, and larger perennial systems. Uh, plan out your kitchen garden, your main crop, your small animals. You're probably not going to have large animals on that size. Um, take the normal approach of water access structures initially and then, of course, um, zones and sectors, slope orientation and, and um, have fun. That's the main thing. Okay, there you go. So I, I think that was awesome. I really do. And the commonality there being the organic matter for growing. And I, I want to say a couple of things here. Number one, Nick mentioned black locust. And black locust is probably a safe bet here. The thorns on black locust... Um, are not really a danger to the type of tractors that get used on a farm of this size and a place where, you know, the, the, the field that, that the pods would fall in and grow up, it's getting plowed and, and, and cut every year anyway, so it's not really going to be that big of an issue. I'd be a little bit careful with it. You might also consider thornless honey locust, but I would not use this as a border plant. I would use this to create shade in areas where you're going to maintain them and prevent the seedlings from growing. Here's the thing about thornless honey locust. The seeds from thornless honey locust, when they throw up seedlings, usually will have thorns, at least some portion of them thereof. There's some town in southern Australia somewhere where they want to crucify Bill Mollison to this day, even though he's passed away, because he came in and planted tons of thornless honey locusts, and then the thorned honey locust came next, in the words of Jurassic Park. Nature found a way. So I would use thornless uh, sparingly, but I think they would be a fantastic fodder plant uh, to be and you, as a filtered shade around your gardens because you're in a very heavy solar uh, exposed area there. Uh, you can get those at Coldstream Farm for next to nothing, and I have a link there. And while you're there, if you check for black locust seedlings, you can get those for next to nothing too. Most of your mulberries, like Morris Alba, like Nick was talking about, I'll just add that they're very easy to root cuttings. And you can make, if you find uh, some, some uh, mulberry that will work for you, you can root cuttings and make trees for almost nothing for your border plantings. The border planting I would actually recommend as your number one border planting to help with spray and stuff would be autumn olive, but I can no longer find a source of seedlings. A lot of you have sent me things about uh, Burnt Ridge and stuff like that. And yes, they have autumn olive, but you, know, you can't border plant even an acre very thickly with autumn olive when you're paying $10, $20 a plant. Uh, you need to be paying like a dollar a plant. But autumn olive does propagate from seeds, so that's something you could look at, uh, finding a source of autumn olive seed, which is wherever they are, and uh, you could look at maybe doing something with those as part of your border long term. Um, shade cloth uh, was something Nick mentioned to put over your garden. Hey, I say build the coop and run that I talked about. Don't even try to garden in your first year. Let the chickens tear that ground up. Put the shade cloth over the chickens. Next year... Put your other run in, move the chickens over, shade cloths there, areas prepared, mulch the hell out of it and garden. And then you you know get the chickens a shade cloth one, and then you're done. And you've got it on both sides. I would recommend 30 to 40% shade cloth to garden under in this environment, though. Uh, 60 will feel better, but I'll tell you what 60 will do. It will seriously reduce how well your plants will grow. I have grown under 60% shade cloths. Certain plants, especially once established, Peppers, sweet potatoes, etc. They do fine under it, but even peppers, it, you got to get the plant up and established before it'll handle that much shade. So here's another option: put the chickens in, throw 60% shade cloth over the run. When you move the chickens next year, move the 60% shade cloth with them. Get yourself some 30% shade cloth, put it over the old run. Every year when you move the chickens, flip flop the shade cloths. 
So that's a little bit of building off of there. Every single one of us mentioned something about biomass. Ben was talking about having people dump it off. I'm going to tell you that where you're talking about an hour south of Little Rock, there ain't a lot. I mean, it's farm country, and there's farms, and there's farms, and there's farms. Dorothy and I drove through that area. There were a lot of little towns there along lakes and stuff like that. You could tell it used to be tourist draws that had died. I talked about this a couple years ago on the air, trees growing through stores in downtowns. Okay, so there's probably not a lot of opportunity to get non-agricultural biomass delivered, but having a good delivery point where you can go acquire it for yourself, I think, is great, and growing your own. I'm going to tell you, again, 60-plus inches of rain in this environment, you can grow the hell out of fodder, trees, things like that, really, really easy. A wood chipper, long-term, would probably be a good investment. One last thing I wanted to say, ponds. Ponds. Um, I mentioned that kind of in passing. I would really think about when you're thinking about you know what Lawton says, water access structure. Nick talked about landforms and stuff like that. This is probably going to be a square flat piece of ground. It may not even matter if you run out with a, a, a level or laser level or something like that. There's probably so little flow across it. It ain't going to matter. Nick's idea of building up a little bit with the shed Probably a good idea, but the reality is you're probably going to put it on a pier and beam type thing anyway, and it's probably going to be a foot to two feet above grade anyway. So, I, you know, but, so you could probably, with this type of soil, you could put in a pond anywhere, anywhere you want, because it's going to permeate through the clay into the pond and fill up with all the rainfall you're going to have, and pretty much you dig a hole and pack it down to put a pond in this type. There's stock tanks. But if you think you're going to want to do that, and again, you probably will have access to equipment, really think about the other things that you put permanently on the property as to where you might eventually have a pond. If it was me, I would have a quarter acre of surface water on an acre in an environment like this. Because I just think it, it will make a hell of a lot more sense uh, once you get that done. And I would try to figure out how to do your pond instead of a circle, which is what everybody does because it's easy, with some sort of undulating edge, you know. Put some edge in it, make it a very natural ecosystem, and that will bring in an incredible amount of biodiversity. Uh, so that would be something that I would add. So I got to take more time, and I got to come back and add to what everybody else had to say. But I'm going to try to do this with other expert council members where we get two or three council members to answer one question. Nobody knows what anybody said. I'll go first, and I'll go last. I think it's awesome. Anyway, we've wrapped up another show. I've got links for everything we talked about in today's show notes. Uh, Nicole Sauce's recommendations on grinders. Ben Fitz's recommendations on speculative coins. Uh, so Coldstream Farm for, for plants that we just talked about just now. Uh, get by and check out. And, and give, us some, give us some ideas, man. I would love more of you to come up with questions like this one that I can give to several expert council members, and we can all take a shot out of it. I think it's really cool when we're able to do that. Also, I, I, I forgot to mention this resource. I have a link in the show notes to it. Um, when we did the Tiny House show uh, with James Burnett on Wednesday, there's a Facebook group. It's a closed group. You'll have to, have to request to join, but it's called Shed to House. Shed to House. It's run by um, Bo Brotherton, who's a friend of the TSP community, 
his wife and he have a uh, YouTube channel called Better, Better Together Life. I sponsor them on Patreon. These are good folks. They've built a group of over 50,000 people that, that are interested in the shed-to-house conversion thing, not just for tiny houses. Some of them are quite large. You'd call them small houses, some of the lofts and things like that. It's a great group. It's a great resource. Get on by and join it if you are looking to do this. And I would definitely recommend, Ken, that your son join this Facebook group because these folks are going to be able to help them a lot. They've been through this crap before, and I'm sorry I forgot it on Wednesday, and I'm sorry I almost forgot it today because it was kind of at the top of my list of things to cover in this question, and then breaking it into two days, it kind of fell apart. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Uh, I want to remind you guys, as always, you can help support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have a specific item for you today, but you can see every review that I've ever done at tspaz.com. You can get on over to Amazon, see what their deals of the day are. As long as you're shopping through tspaz.com, you help the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. And uh, please remember that. Please try to help us out because you're probably going to buy something in the next week online. All right. Uh, also, you can also support us by joining the MSB. I'll be short on that and just say, hey, if you become a member of the site, you get a bunch of discounts, you'll get your money back because the discounts are that good, and you'll help support the show. And let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day is kind of a, an interesting one here, and I probably won't get it 100% right. Uh, I ended up going to several different websites in addition to the resources that John Adam gave me to talk about this, uh, this, this, this particular instance. So uh, the song is Bama Breeze by Jimmy Buffett, and it is, it is a really cool song. Um. This song's about a real place, and it's not about a real place. Is, 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 you can see where it gets complicated already. So the Bama Breeze that it, this song ends up being about, when Jimmy Buffett started writing this song, it was just like a fictitious place. And then he kind of realized, and his, his sister Lulu pointed out to him, that this sounded an awful lot like a place called the Flora Bama which is kind of a crazy honky-tonk type thing, and it's right on the Florida-Alabama line on the Gulf. So half the bar is actually in Florida and half the bar is in Alabama, and it's right on the coast. And all kinds of crazy crap goes on at this place. And the song was actually altered a little bit to fit the narrative because he hung out in this place a lot when he was a young guy too. Things like Mick Jagger signing the, the, the bathroom stall in the ladies' room, like this really happened at this place. And the Florabama is there. You can go there now. But it's the new Florabama, not the old Florabama, because the, the Florabama was destroyed by Hurricane Ivan, just wiped it out. So if you go watch the video that goes with this song, you'll see Jimmy on the beach and walking around, and you'll see this just destroyed bar just just wiped out and the thing is it's not the Florabama it's actually a different bar it was the uh, the fire dog saloon I believe in Bay St. Louis Mississippi which was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina and was never rebuilt so they couldn't get the effect they were looking for in the video at the Florabama because they fixed it so they used the remnants of this this, this other place that was never fixed to shoot the video. Additionally, this is cool stuff to me anyway, being a Buffett fan, Jimmy actually cut two versions of this song and one where he had made some of these changes. And some of these changes included talking about the owner of the bar being Lulu. Well, Lulu is his, his sister. 
And she actually has a place, it's like a bar and restaurant called Lulu's, but it's not where the Florabama is. But he changed it, putting her name in it, and when the song came out, the family didn't know, he didn't tell anybody which one they were actually going to use. So when it came out, it was like a big surprise for her. Then, since he had done that, when they shot the video, the owner, bartender, head chick in charge of the, the, the bar where they show all the partying going on is actually his sister in the video. So it's cool. The other thing is it is kind of sad. And there's when I, when I watched the video and I looked at some of the comments, there were people that said, you know, I have misty eyes from this, and, and if you don't understand why, you probably can't understand why. I didn't, but I do now. And so even though they put the place back, you know, when you, when you watch this song, if you're from the area and you saw the destruction that came in from these storms and these other storms of the past, wiping out business and all, it's got to hit you. But the other thing is, okay, they put the Florabama back. It's there. It's all new and shiny and sparkly and better than it ever. But if you are a young person that came up in that environment, it'll never be the same. How can you replace the history that was there with just a new building and new shiny stuff? So there's a lot going on here. Anyway, hope you guys enjoy uh, this song. I think it's a good song to kick off a Friday with. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the story, when he talks about Jimmy and using the tip dart to pay his bail where he got busted for smoking some reefer in his car in the parking lot is a true story with that has been jack spirko with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher even if they don't at the bama breeze you can shoot some pool down there You can act a fool down there You can play it cool down there At the Bama Breeze You can drink some beer down there Or you laugh and cheer down there Pass another year down there Jimmy got caught Smoking a joint out behind the bar Sitting in his car and they took him to jail The tip jar pays bail. In 1984, Mick Jagger passed through town, bought the house around, signed his name on the wall in the ladies' bathroom stall. Yeah. At the Bama Breeze, I turned 21 down there, had too much fun down there. Stumble out with the sun down there
back alone down there. Good God, I feel at home down there. Alone down there. Good God, I feel it.